Turn with me to the passage that Exxon Jew read this morning in Colossians chapter 1, if you're not already there, verses 15 to 23. One of the greatest passages in the Bible that deals with the deity of Jesus Christ and who he is. It's been one of my favorites over the years as I've had conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses to use, but never studied it out like I have in the last week or two. Um, just totally love my study and this incredible passage. Christ's supremacy, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. You know, when we talk about great sports teams that were the best or that were supreme, we may be tempted to speak of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, 96 Chicago Bulls, or we may be, I hate to say it, think of the dynasty the New England Patriots had as um, one of the great football organizations, at least the last 10 years. Um, but there's no t sports team that compares to their excellence and dynasty, their supremacy in any sport as the college basketball team that John Wooden built at UCL UCLA in the 60s and the 70s. They won 10 NCAA championships out of 12 years, his last 12 years, and he resigned in 1975. In fact, I became a fan in the 70s of, of um, John Wooden and UCLA. I can remember my grandma buying me a yellow um, UCLA um, um, jersey and Bruins on the side there. Um, I was a bandwagon fan. Um, they were a great team. Um, they won 88 games straight. No one has come close to... to um, to, to that record. They had a dynasty. They were supreme. Or if you want to think of the business world, we may be tempted to think of Amazon, how they dominate. Um, 52.4% of all e-commerce is done by Amazon in the United States. Many people, shoppers, they'll begin their shop online. They'll go to Amazon versus Google or Yahoo or eBay. You know, we may have a passing interest in some of those supremacies but one that must never be a passing interest, one that must truly consume us is the supremacy of Jesus Christ because this is truly a life changer. If we get who Christ is, if we understand who he is and what he has done for us, our whole lives will change. It must change. In fact, that's why this passage flows together. As we're looking, we looked in verse 9 and 10 and he's talking about um, thankfulness and, and referring to that it, he wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will that we would live lives that are, that are pleasing. And then he gets into verses 12 to 14 and he talks about what Christ has done. And as he's so consumed with who Christ is or what he has done, he slips into this passage in verses 15 and following. You know, I said before that, that this is probably the most Christocentric book in all of the New Testament. It's incredible emphasis on who Christ is. The first two chapters driving home the deity of Jesus Christ. And Paul is stressing it, and he's stressing it to believers at Colossae that were being challenged with false teaching all around them. And we'll see that false teaching specifically in chapter 2, verse 18, worship to angels. But they were being challenged with mysticism, ritualism, speculation, um, asceticism, all of these alternatives to worship. And Paul is hammering home that Christ is to be elevated, that Christ is supreme. And that's his whole flow 13 through verse 22, he ties it all together to know who God is, who Christ is, what he has done for us, and this should be our expression. So my prayer is this morning, as we come to this passage, that truly Christ's supremacy, that we will get his supremacy over his creation, 
and that we will see it in these verses. And as we understand that Christ is supreme over his first creation, Christ is supreme over his new creation, we the church, then he must be supreme over our lives. So the supremacy of Christ must lead to supremacy in our lives. Let's look at the first point in verses 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he writes here and he says, he, well, we have to ask, well, who is he speaking to? So he's connecting back into verse 14, and that Christ was the subject there. And he says, he is the image. It's a word for which you're familiar. The Greek word, the Greek word is icon. Um, he is our icon. Christ is the exact, is the exact image we use, it's used in Matthew chapter 22, verse um, 20, speaking of Caesar's image on a coin. And the kind of what Exxon Jew read and was referred to in his prayer is that we're made in the image of God. And I think this is an allusion back to Genesis 1.27 that is referring to man that was made in the image of God, but man wasn't perfectly made in the image of God. Any of you think that you're the perfect image of God? No, I'm good. Good, nobody. Uh, we're, we're not the perfect image of God. You know, we have a shadow of the image of God. Um, man is a rational being. He can think with his intellect, his emotion, and his will. And we have a weak shadow of the attributes of God, but we certainly don't have the attributes in its fullness. Uh, we're not morally as God. We're not completely holy as God is. We don't have his incommunicable attributes. Those that is, he's everywhere present. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. So we're made in the, in the image of God, but in the shadow. But get what it says here. He is the image of God. Christ wasn't made in the image of God. He is the image of God. He's the very perfect image of God in its absolute perfection. There's a key verb here. Those of you that like English, what's the verb that we see in verse 15? He, what? He is the image of God. Now, is it speaking of something in the past that it was and no longer true? Or is it saying something that's going to be in the future and it's not yet true? No, it's in the present tense. He is the image of God. At that very time, he was in the image of God. And it's not limited to just then. It reaches back to eternity past in the present and eternity in the future. So he's speaking to the Colossian believers for them to get who Christ is, that he is the image of God, the very exact image. And this will be shouted out in the verses that follow, in verses 16 and 17, and that he made everything. And then Colossians 1.19 and 2.9 explodes who Christ is. Christ is the fullness of God. He is the very exact fullness. So this passage is all flowing together. And I emphasize that for this reason. Well, let me, before I get to that, let me ask you a question. How many of you in here, we have some 10 people or so. Any of you firstborn? Any of you like the firstborn? Okay, we have Chris, Dave, Exxon, Jew. Um, so a few of you are firstborn. So we read this word here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And we think of like, you had a beginning point. David, a beginning point. We, beginning point. We're not going to guess the years of your beginning point. Um, but that's not what the word is referring to of Christ. In fact, Jehovah's Witnesses will use this word firstborn and they'll try to prove their false theology that you said here it says firstborn, so it must be referring to a starting point, that Christ had a starting point, that he's not the eternal. 
And I counter with that with another primary meaning of the word firstborn. It's not just to be that he had a beginning, but firstborn is often, and we'll prove this in a moment, talking of priority of position. It's talking about one's prominence. It's talking about not beginning point, but one's status and his priority. And that's how it's used here. In fact, JW is not to keep talking of them, but they deceptively insert the word other in verses 16 and 17 because they can't have Christ creating everything if he was created. So they'll say he created, and they'll put in the parenthesis other, which totally changes the meaning. But he didn't create all other things. It says he created everything, but we'll get there. He is the image of the invisible God, the exact image, the exactness. He's in the present tense, eternal present. And he's the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn, so how do we know if it's referring to a starting point or is it referring to to prominence? Context must show you. And this context screams that Christ is eternal, that he's a priority of position. To force it that he had a beginning point would do an incredible injustice against this text. You'd have to cut out the context. And we see in verses 16 and 17, for by him all things, and that all, by the way, that Greek word pas is used eight times, is, is tremendously emphasizing he is supreme above everything, and that everything is also the word pas. So Christ is supreme over all things. He created everything. He created all things. Then secondly, we see that Christ is the creator. If he's the creator of everything, if he's the the perfect, complete image of God, he's the creator of everything. And thirdly, Paul is moving towards refuting the false teaching. The false teaching that stated that Christ was one of many angelic beings that descended from God, that they are stepping stones to God. The further they get away from God, then it gets less important. There would be no argument if they were to say that Christ was created because then they would be right. But Paul is arguing that theology. He's fighting against it, that Christ is to be worshipped. Yea, that in verse 19 and 2.9, he is in his fullness. So the context demands it. But let me turn your attention to another passage that's on the screen behind you. We know the Greek Septuagint. The Greek Septuagint is the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And Psalm 89, 27, it says, I will make him, referring to David, right? I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's the same Greek word in that translation as we have here in Colossians 1. What are they saying? Well, David, not referring to his beginning point, but that God is going to elevate him to be supreme position above all the other kings of the earth. So here's the the idea, the same with Christ, that Christ is to be elevated, that he's going to be supreme. So the firstborn of Christ is stressing his uniqueness. Now, why am I getting so excited on that? Not only because I love the deity of Christ, but there's an incredible connection that we're going to look at. If I get the supremacy of Christ in the first creation and the new creation, the church, then what's to be the follow point? Then he should be preeminent in my life. He should be supreme in my life. Verse 16, 
Paul continues to drive home the supremacy of Christ and he says, for by him all things were created. This four is an explanatory four that kicks us back to verse 15. So now he's taking verse 15 and all of that and putting it into 16. For by him all things were created. The second use of the word all, everything. God created everything. Christ could not have been created if he created everything. He created everything. He didn't create himself. He says he created all things. Everything was created by Christ. This created, if you care, is in the aorist tense, which is past completed action. And I'm saying that because the word create is used twice in this verse, and the second use of create is going to pop when we understand the first one. The first is looking at the past. And the aorist, sometime in the past, Christ created everything. So all things were made, were made by Christ. Then he moves on and he says, not only were all things created, um, uh, then he says, in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. And he's using contrast here. He's invisible, visible, heavens, earth. He's using the contrast to show the totality that Christ made everything. But look at the second use of the word created here. All things were created through him and for him. Now, I'm not trying to impress you with a little bit of Greek that I know. But there's really a value to what I'm about to say. The first created is aorist tense in the past. This created is in the perfect tense. Well, what's a perfect tense? Perfect tense is action completed in the past with continuing results. Did you hear me on that? An action that was completed in the past with continuing results. So all things were created through him and for him. So he's saying everything was created yeah, in the past, but it has continuing results, and the results is to be for him. So everything that was created is to be for Christ. Everything that's created is to have ongoing results. So as I order my life, that my life, I am created, I am created for him. I am created to continue to, may I say, give him glory. I'm made for him. That my very essence, my very being. So he's shown the Colossians believers, you need to get who Christ is. And he was and you were created for him. But it's with that ongoing results. That's pretty cool, right? It's something that happened in the past, but it's to be continuous. So I was made in the past, but my continuous existence is to bring him glory. It's continually for him. You know, by studying the creation, and I don't pretend to be a scientist, I just like when I read these kind of illustrations and, and, and truths. When we study the creation, we get a glimpse of the power, the knowledge, and the absolute wisdom, the awesomeness of a creator that would make all of this. The sheer size of the universe is staggering. If Ray Rutherford were here, Ray, I'd have you talk and talk about for one minute about this. The sun has a diameter of 864,000 miles. The earth's diameter is what? 8,000 miles. That's 100 times bigger than the earth. You could fit, it is said, that we could fit 1.3 million planets the size of Earth inside the sun. That's how massive the sun is. The star Betelgeuse has a diameter, you ready for this? We're 8,000. We're 8, Their diameter is 100 million miles. I mean, that, I, can't, I can't even wrap my mind around that. 100 million miles diameter? It's larger than the Earth's orbit around the sun. The star Betelgeuse. It takes sunlight traveling at the speed of light 186,000 miles a second from the sun 
to get to earth 8.5 minutes. But if it travels that same distance to the closest star, which is Alpha Centauri, it takes four years to get to the closest star to us, traveling at 186,000 miles a second. That's how massive this universe is. The Milky Way galaxy to which our, our sun belongs, it said it contains hundreds of billions of stars. Our galaxy, hundreds of billions of stars, and astronomers estimate there are millions or even billions of galaxies. I, 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 my, my mind's about to fizzle. And here that's our creator. He made everything. Then you think of the songs that our team led us in worship this morning, the wonderful cross, or Jesus, thank you. I mean, this creator came down and put this stuff on, called flesh, he became incarnate, The verse ends as it began, that all things were created through him. He is just driving home this point that everything was made through him. Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Well, why? Why is everything to him? Why is everything for him? So that we could kind of go out and hang out and have a great life. That we could put our own dreams together, right? That we could have our own plans. I'm going to do what I want to No, I, I missed the rest of the verse. To him be the glory forever. I'm to live so that I point to him. Everything that I do in my life is to point, is direct to him. How are we doing, friends, in that? How are we doing in, in that for him fact of this verse? Do we order our lives as, as our daily schedule? Does it reflect that we're living for him? How would we do how would our day be different if we were to live for him? What would we do differently if we were living for him? How, what would the comments that would pass from our lips if we were living for him? Or what would our minds think about if we were living for him, if we were acting for him? How would the activities that we engage in be different if we understood, remembered who Christ is and if we were living for him? What would we watch on the TV, on the computer, how would it be different if we were living for him? And on and on we could go. For him. And he is before all things. This is the second of three times that this word he is is used in the present tense. He is before all things. This is basically synonymous with firstborn of all creation. He's before everything. This keep pointing to the fact that he is to receive the glory. He is to receive the praise. And Paul is just driving home this point that everything, he's before all things. But isn't it kind of sweet just, we can't really camp too long on it. The end of verse 17, all things hold together by him. That everything's held together by him. We pray for Walt and Sandy Steele. And it's a comfort to Walt when he remembers that God's holding everything together. Even though it may look confusing and it's a hard, hard path to travel through, God's holding it all together. God has a purpose, Walt. You know, we look at Carolyn or the lives of others and health challenges. Those have Crohn's or have various challenges with their, with their, um, with their health. That God is holding everything together. That God has a plan. God has a purpose. Uh, and we're to keep giving him glory. Well, we step into verses 18 through 20, and that was the supremacy over the, the first creation. And it really should be a message in itself, but this is really one paragraph together that we're addressing. Verses 18 to 20 is Christ's supremacy now over the 
body that he made. He became the head over the new creation. And we see this in verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So he's driving home this point. He's stressing this point that Christ's preeminence as it was over creation, it's also now as it's over the new creation, over the body. Um, Christ is the head. And then he's talking the body, the church, the body. We're the body. Once we put our faith and trust in Christ as our Savior, we are brought into the, into the body of Christ. And it's indivisible, it's united, and we, we're, we're a living organism, and we get our strength and our nourishment from Christ. And he's to, he is to control every part of that. He is to control every part of our life and every part of our, every fiber of our being. So he's writing now, continuing on the same vein, how Christ is supreme. And pretty soon he'll rip aside the curtains and shout it out that he should be preeminent. But he's saying that Christ is the head, he's the body, that Christ is to be the one that we're connected to and to remember his position. Kind of the application I was driving home earlier, the body's not to go out and do something that the head's not telling it to do. We're allowed the head to direct us. And he gives us the purpose. It's a, it's a purpose clause in the Greek. And he's giving us a purpose and he says he's the head of the body. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So he's the one that is the eternal one, the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. He came from the dead. He's the beginning of the new life that we have, the church at, the, at, the, at Pentecost or prior to when he rose from the dead. Moving forward, the church was begun. But he says, here's the purpose of it all. Why, why was the church made? Why was the church organized? Why was the church given the opportunity? Why were we given the opportunity to be part of the church at the resurrection of Christ? That in everything, that's a purpose, hint a clause, in order that, in order that he might be preeminent. You see, we're saved for a purpose. We're saved for a reason. It's not just to hang out and do what we want. We're saved to make him preeminent. We're saved to point to him. We're saved to give him glory. He's to have the preeminent position. But allow me to put preeminent over here on the side for a moment because I want to have the application after 20. And he continues to drive home the point in verse 19. Uh, why is he to be preeminent? What is the purpose of it? For in him. Here's the reason Christ should be preeminent. Um, kind of like you think of a, a kid that is a great baseball player. Uh, imagine a, a, a college or a pro playing with kids that are in eighth grade. Well, he's going to be the best, and he's going to be the first one chosen. Why? Because he has the best skill. Well, Christ should be preeminent. Christ should be who he is in our lives. Why? Why should he be preeminent? Why should he be preeminent in your life, Boaz, and Phil, Kalisa, Solomon, and on and on we go. Why should Christ be preeminent? Who is he? I mean, who are you? Credentials are everything. Verse 19, for in him. This is, this is, this is loaded, all right? We're talking about, we're talking about the bedrock foundation of the deity of Christ here. For in him dwells all of the fullness. In him all of the fullness, all of the completeness of God resides in him. I say it lovingly. Take that, every cultist. In Christ. In Christ dwells everything of God. In him resides the fullness, the completeness of who God is. 
All of the fullness of God resides in Jesus Christ. Well, who is, who is God? Is God absolutely holy? Well, then so is Christ. Is God absolutely eternal? So is Christ. Is God unchangeable? So is Christ. Is God omnipresent? So is Christ. Is God omnipotent? So is Christ. Is God omniscient? So is Christ. We see all of these truths continually residing in Christ that he's the eternal one, just the same as God. He's the sovereign one. He rules as Christ does. He doesn't have some of it. He doesn't have most of it. He doesn't have a lot of it. It says he has all of the fullness of God. It all resides in him. It's that, that word all, that word, and I have it highlighted in brown in my Bible. All is used eight times here. Um, that word pos, all, 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 all the fullness dwells in, in, in Christ, everything. Remember our point? I guess we kind of see it there. Supremacy of Christ. Christ is supreme. So is he going to be supreme in our lives? And he, he moves on and through him. So we, we had to have this supreme God come down and do what he did in verse 20. Um, you're good people here, and you're watching. I'm sure you're good too. Um, but you could not reconcile man to God. We needed a perfect sacrifice. And so he easily flows into verse 20. And we're, we're, we're thinking of the praise song that we sang some 20 minutes ago. Jesus, thank you. And we flow easily into verse 20 and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So Christ, this eternal God, came. Because he had to. He had to reconcile us. We were in trouble. And we're going to see that in a moment. In verse 21. But we had an incredible problem. It was called sin. A separation from God. But Christ came. He came because there was a purpose. He had to come and reconcile us. You know, reconciliation, it usually works. Let's say if I was to do something against my dear friend Exanjou. And for us to be reconciled. I should come to you and to, you know, to, to offer an apology. Please forgive me for my rudeness, whatever I did. You know, I hope that never happens. But here, notice who's approaching whom. God, the eternal one, the, the offended party is approaching the offender. He is coming to reconcile us to himself. Man's in this state of enmity. Man's in this state of, of estrangement, in this state of separation. But Christ comes to offer peace. Christ comes to offer fellowship. Christ comes to the guilty party, and he's taking the initiative to make those that are alienated, those that are hostile, those that are evil in their mind and deeds, to make it right with him. How did he do it? All things, earth and heaven. And I think it's really looking at, just a quick PS, looking at down the end line um, in eternity future when earth and heavens are done, that Christ is going to reconcile everything to himself. He's, yeah, there will be judgment, but it'll make a new heaven and a new earth and that he will be supreme. But look at, the, look at the means by which he would do it. Making peace by the blood of his cross. Peace by the blood of his cross. You know, if you were a Colossian resident in that time, a Colossian believer, you may have thought in this phrase of a political propaganda that the Roman emperors and Roman generals were called peacemakers, that they made peace. But how do they make peace? They're going to crush you. They're going to step on you. They're going to stomp you down and bring you under their rule. They made peace by might. But what is Christ saying? He's making peace by Humility. 
making peace by the blood of the cross. Thursday night. I'll say more, more later. Thinking on the back porch of who Christ is and thinking of ministry and thinking of, of, of life after hearing a, a dear friend passing away. And just say, what is the key in each, in, what would have been the key in his life, the key in my life, in each of our lives? And I looked up at the stars and it was a little cloudy that night so it wasn't easiest to see, but to be reminded of who Christ is. That's really the key, the supremacy of Christ, that, 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 that we would get that, that we would remember who he is. And that fact should so impact us. That fact should drive us. That fact should, should hunger, drive hunger in our souls to please him. I'm going to just give you a few stats. By the way, what I meant, I'll say more. Maybe my next message in Colossians, um, a passage I'm thinking of, um, I'll tie in that story. Um, but when we look at some of these statistics, tithers, it says, make up 10 to 25% of most churches. The average giving, you know what the average giving of most Christians is? Evangelicals. This is done not among just broad, but Gallup specifically. 22.5% is the average giving of most Christians. It also went on to say that 59% of millennials raised in church have dropped out. Why? Why are young people leaving? They might say, well, my parents just weren't the real deal and I didn't see genuineness in them. They, they can't blame anyone. There never ought to be a dropout rate like that. We ought to remember who Christ is and we ought to remember that he's God and what he's done for us. That should drive us in our passion for him. 20% of the people do 80% of the work while the rest do mostly nothing. We're familiar with that one. One-fifth of Christians say they rarely or never pray for the spiritual status of others. Actually, I thought it would be a higher percentage. One-third of Americans who attend a Protestant church say they read the Bible personally every day. One-third. One-third of people get into the Word of God, so two-thirds aren't reading the Bible. And in my experience, that's pretty accurate. Um, you know, what I, what, when I ask people, 95% of Christians have never won a soul to Christ. 80% say they don't, um, they don't consistently witness for Christ. Do, do those statistics say that Christ is preeminent in our lives? Do those stats say that Christ is everything to me, that he is supreme, not my dreams, not my will, my desires? I want to live for God, that he's supreme? It's also connected, this whole paragraph, from verses 3 and following. But if you remember verses 9 and 10, the prayer that Paul prays, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. I want you to be filled with the word of God. Why? So you walk worthy, you walk pleasing to him. Then he lists four things that they should do in pleasing him. And then he throws in there, in case you've forgotten, this is who he is. This is the one that we're living for to please. This is the one and that we want to honor. This is the one that we're after that to make preeminent in our lives. It's loaded. We come to the last section. 21 to 23, Christ's supremacy in reconciling sinful creation to himself. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Who were you? Who were you before you accepted Christ as your Savior? 
If you're listening today, watching today, and you've never come to know Christ as your Savior, this is who you are now. If you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says that you're alienated. That means to be, to be estranged, to be separated from God, to be, be outside. We're not, as at Steve's message last Sunday night, we're not adopted. We're not in the family of God. It says that we're hostile in our minds, is that, that we're hateful. The same word is used in Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, it's that word enemies, that the Bible says we're, we're enemies of God. You might say, well, what, whoa, man, you're really off track, Dave. But, but the Bible doesn't look at, ex, we're not talking about externally. We might say, well, that's a pretty nice person. They seem, God's looking at the heart and realizes that a person that's trusting in themselves and what they can do is an enemy of God and saying to God, God, I hate you. I don't believe who Christ is. I don't think his work is enough to pay for my sin. I am my own God. I'm paying for my sins. That's in competition with God. Hostility. We were at one point hostile. We were at enmity with God. But that, that's our past condition. We need to remember our past. He's reminding, this is what you were in the past. This is what, what God has done for you. He's changed everything. Look at 22. <clears throat> we don't see it in our, in our English text. Um, it's kind of too bad. Um, but it's one of the sweetest words in the Greek that changes everything. It's the word day. Alec, if you could shout out, what would that be? That's a contrast. It's the word but. But. He's changing everything. Hostility, alienation, enemies in the mind. And he changes it all and he puts in verse 22, but he has now reconciled. It's all changed. Christ has changed everything. Fasten the light bulb. The light streams on. Christ gives us light. Christ has changed our existence, changed our, our eternity. And he's shown them of who God is and what Christ has done for them, that he's removed the alienation. He's removed the hostility. He's removed the enmity. So what? I mean, for, for what purpose? That we could be reconciled. He has done this so that we could be reconciled on his body, but he's going to call us holy, blameless, and above reproach. Holy, we look around and we say, man, I, you know, he's a nice person, but I don't know if I would say he's holy. God's looking at us as holy, positionally. We're still getting it right on, on earth. And it ought to be a tra trajectory of continually climbing, going higher and higher in, in, the, in the image of Christ. But he positionally saved us, made us holy. He made us blameless. That's a sacrificial term. Like a, a, an animal without blemish brought to the sacrifice. That he would look at us without a blemish that he would look at us as in the family of God, that he brought us, and then we, we would be beyond reproach. No one could say, Satan's not going to be able to accuse us. Look at Dave Crompton. Man, what a mess he is. Look at what he's doing. He's not your child. I am beyond reproach before God. No one, Romans 8.33 says, will be able to accuse us before God. What is our rightful response? If I could borrow the hymn that, that, that we were led in this morning. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gained I count but lost and pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, if all of it were mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine. What does it demand? It demands my soul, 
demands my life, my all. He must be preeminent. He should have everything. Because of who he is, he is supreme. I must make him supreme in my life. And briefly, verse 23 in closing, it's not speaking of losing salvation. It's speaking of one that we would continue in the faith by continuing in the faith firmly established. If you're truly saved, if you truly know God, then to be firmly, firmly planted, firmly established, firmly steadfast. Let the gospel do its work. Let the gospel have its inroads in your life. Let the good news of Jesus Christ make an impact in our lives and direct us and guide us in how we're to live. Flesh out gospel truth, a.k.a. verses 9 and 10, being filled with the knowledge of his will, pleasing God. And now he says, flesh it out. Verses 5 and 6, remember those two words we looked at? Increasing and growing. The gospel is increasing. The gospel is growing. Well, we are to be increasing, he says, and somewhere around... 12 or 13, increasing. We're to be growing in the knowledge of God because the gospel's doing that in our lives. In closing, what is supreme in your life? What's number one? What is preeminent? Christ's supremacy over his creation, Christ's supremacy over his first creation, Christ's supremacy in reconciling his creation demands that Christ be preeminent in my life. How do we do that? The word remember is not here, but let me borrow this word. Um, when my precious mom, the last couple years of her life, um, she was losing her mind. I guess it was senility. Um, she couldn't remember things. She would go for a walk and get lost in our neighborhood. Um, once looked down on our front lawn and said, who are the girls on their front lawn? And they were our daughters. Um, would forget things on the stove, forgetting people at the end. But one thing we must never do, we must not go senile in our thinking. We must remember we must remember this truth. Number one, remember your previous condition. Verse 21, dwell on it. I, at one point, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if, if you haven't, give us a call. We would love to sit down, talk on the phone or talk in person. We'll wear a mask of how you come to know Christ as your Savior, how you no longer would be alienated, no longer hostile, no longer outside the family of God. But if you have transferred your faith and trust to Jesus Christ and have meant it, then it's not enough to sit. In fact, a true believer won't sit on their faith. A true believer will flesh it out and, and live as God wants them to. So number one, remember your past. We need to remember who we were. Were, that's the key word there. Secondly, we rem remember the need who Christ is. Used three times. He is, he is, he is in this passage. Remember who Christ is. May, may, that, mind, may that thought just baffle our minds that Christ came, Christ the Supreme One came for my salvation. And then thirdly, may we remember what Christ has done for us, that he's made peace by the blood of the cross. And what's the greatest reminder? Verses 9 and 10, be filled with the knowledge of his word so we may live lives pleasing to him. Don't be that one-third that gets into the Bible. Don't be the two-thirds that don't get into the Bible. Be the one-third, may that number grow, people that get into the word of God and apply it to your life. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. God, may we have hearts filled with thanksgiving and lives filled with thanksgiving.
We love you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.